Here is how you can pray for me this morning. You can pray that I would be able to maintain my composure because to be with you is... Well, it doesn't appear you've prayed much. Um, <laughs> to be with you is, is it's overwhelming. Let me tell you, let me tell you, if I have the privilege to read God's word to you and preach from God's word to you. Let let, let me tell you briefly, and this really is brief, uh, why I accepted Jared's kind invitation to serve you, why I will always accept his kind invitation to come here. Uh, Here are just a few reasons why. You, you, You are and you always will be my second favorite church. You will. You, you will. Because in God's kindness, he allowed me in 1984 to play a, a very small role in the planting of this church. So each time I return to this church and observe God's faithfulness to this church and the fruitfulness of this church, it's overwhelming. And I'm grateful that he allowed me to play a small role and then he's allowed me to live, to serve in small ways over the years and to be here with you yet. Again, another reason you you are on the short list of my favorite churches is it is always such a joy to come here and preach Oh my my, you are, you are so attentive to God's word. You are so responsive to God's word. You are so encouraging after the preached word. I always find myself making my way back home and thinking, okay, maybe I am called to do this. Um, <laughs> and I keep trying, and I keep trying as a result of being with you. So thank you. Uh, another reason I... I eagerly accept Jared's kind invitation is because I come here to learn. I come here to learn from your lead pastor. And last night, learn I did. He gave me more than three hours of his time at dinner. And I texted him when I got back to the room that there will be far-reaching effects from his answers to my questions and the wise counsel that he provided for me. I'm always eager to come here to learn from your exemplary pastoral team. I'm always eager to come here because it provides me uh, yet another opportunity to thank and encourage Mark Prater, who is just doing a fabulous job leading Sovereign Grace churches. Oh my, what joy that brings to a founder of Sovereign Grace. But here's the primary reason I eagerly, gladly accept Jared's kind invitation primary reason is it affords me the opportunity to thank you. And here's what I wish. I wish there were time after this meeting for me to look each of you in the eye and say this to you. But to save you all time, let me just communicate. 
my deep and profound gratefulness for, let's just do two evidences of grace. The far-reaching effect of your example as a church. Your devotion to the Lord himself. Your devotion to the church he loves and died for. Your devotion to seek, emulate his example, and seek and save the lost. Your pronounced devotion, your genuine devotion to him, to his church, to the lost, and to church planting has an influence well beyond the borders of this particular church and location to the far reaches of this planet and sovereign grace. And so I want to come this morning on their behalf and say thank you. And I also want to thank you for your generosity. You are a generous church. To, to be here is to observe that generosity, to feel the pleasure of God in that generosity. So unselfish. Simply awakening each day to please him, to glorify him by serving him, gladly serving him in the context of this church. And by your generosity here, the felt effect of that is experienced throughout this country and throughout the world. And I'm here to thank you for the effect of your generosity on the church where I serve in Louisville. Not a uh, particularly intelligent individual, really simple, ordinary person. I've got a, you know, graduated from high school, but even that should be investigated. Um, <laughs> so I always feel so inadequate in these moments because I don't have an expansive vocabulary. But I hope that what I lack in vocabulary, I make up for in tears. And that my tears of gratefulness convey my heart of gratefulness. So, thank you. Uh, we celebrate in Sovereign Grace Churches our 40th anniversary this year. By the way, some of you are thinking, you know, <laughs> you want to maintain your composure. You're the idiot for continuing to... You know, articulate all these things you're grateful for. You're right. I am an idiot. And if my mom were here, she'd fully agree with you. Um, so do the math. That means I was 28 when this all started. That means I had hair. You have to imagine how long ago this was. How kind of the Lord to allow me to live 40 years so that I might observe all that has unimaginably taken place. So thank you for bringing this aging pastor founder so much joy. Those are just a few of the reasons why. When Jared asks me to come, the answer is always yes. Thank you. Please turn in your Bible to the first letter of Peter, 
chapter 5. The subject that I have been tasked to address you on this morning is spiritual warfare, a topic that has yielded a, a wide range of erroneous positions and misguided applications among Christians. In his well-known book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis identified two false and opposing viewpoints that people often subscribe to regarding spiritual warfare. Lewis wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. In my personal experience as a Christian, I'm sorry to say, I'm familiar with both errors. I'm familiar with excessive, unhealthy interest, and I'm familiar with excessive, unhealthy disinterest. My experience of excessive, unhealthy interest in Satan and the demonic world got underway soon after my conversion when someone recommended I read a book titled Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And so that book, along with my early experience in the charismatic movement, left me excessively aware of the existence and the machinations of the evil one. That it might surprise you to also learn that I am personally familiar with excessive, unhealthy disinterest in spiritual warfare. Over the years, following my conversion, as I grew in my understanding of the sovereignty of God, reformed soteriology, the doctrine of sin, which, by the way, is the biblical category that should inform our understanding of spiritual warfare, first and foremost. But the more I became familiar with sovereignty of God, reformed theology, doctrine of sin, the less I thought about Satan and his strategies to oppose me and to oppose those I loved and served with the gospel. In his fine book that I highly recommend titled Against the Darkness, author Graham Cole describes the plight of many Christians in the West when he writes, so many Christians in the West live as though the story of creation involved in the main just two characters, God and ourselves. Well, for me, slowly and imperceptibly, I became one of those Christians and didn't realize it, didn't realize it until some 10 to 12 years ago when I was enduring what my wife Carolyn identified as a slander storm. It was during this time that I came to realize I was essentially ignoring Satan's activity in my life. And at one particular low point, my wife was trying to care for me in my discouraged state and she asked me this question, do you believe in Satan anymore? Now, she wasn't inquiring about my formal theology. Instead, she was gently challenging my functional theology because it was apparent to her that even though I hadn't altered my belief in the existence of Satan, the devices of the evil one weren't a functional category for me anymore. And her concern was that in the midst of suffering, I had forgotten there was another character involved in my life, an enemy with evil intent. And perhaps 
particularly given the size of this wonderful congregation. Some of you have forgotten there is another character involved in your life with evil intent. In his book, From Eden to the New Jerusalem, T. Desmond Alexander reminds us, we catch but occasional glimpses, occasional glimpses in Scripture of this shadowy opponent. This should not surprise us. As divine revelation, the Bible exists to give us a deeper understanding of God. It is not designed to promote knowledge of the enemy. Now, read this carefully. Beyond what is necessary for comprehending the world in which we live and our own experience of it. In Peter's first letter, he provides us with a glimpse of our shadowy opponent. And since these glimpses in Scripture are rare, each one is important and instructive. So, if you've lost sight of your shadowy opponent, Peter serves us this morning with a glimpse of him in chapter 5 because this glimpse is necessary. It's necessary for comprehending the world in which we live and our experience of it. And Peter tells us why. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The divinely inspired author of this letter writes these words informed by his painful personal history in order to serve the original readers and to prepare them for spiritual warfare and by implication to serve and prepare us. Peter could no doubt vividly recall when Jesus singled him out by name and made the following sobering statement designed to get Peter's attention and warn him of impending danger. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now listen, the, the, the double use of Simon by our Lord, Simon, Simon, sh should have alerted Peter to what was to follow. When Jesus uses your name twice in Scripture, when Jesus uses your name twice, 
He is communicating both his affection and he is preparing you for correction. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. <laughs> I feel normally this is how the Lord is communicating with me each and every day. <laughs> It seems like so often that's what I hear. Double use. CJ. CJ. <laughs> this whole scene is instructive, and I have, I have always been captured by it. Had I been present, had I been the object of this, had Jesus said to me, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. I think I can confidently assure you, I would have interrupted the Lord Jesus at that point and said to him, and you said no, right? I mean, you, you shut this down, did you not? can't imagine I wouldn't have interrupted him to receive some assurance from him that this is not going to happen. Peter, there is no such interruption recorded by Peter. Instead, Peter dismisses the impending danger and instead in his arrogance says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But he would not accompany Jesus to prison and death. Instead, Peter was sifted following Jesus' arrest. He was temporarily blown away by the wind of persecution. And it was Jesus' prayer for Peter that his faith may not fail. It is that prayer that made all the difference for Peter. And this is, that prayer is the decisive explanation for why his faith ultimately did not fail following his repeated denials of Jesus. And by the way, this would be no different for each of us if you are a Christian this morning. Oh my, my. Let's just pause for a moment and give thanks. Are you not grateful this morning? Are you not deeply and profoundly grateful that the risen Christ of the cross, exalted, seated in authority at the right hand of the Father, is ever living to make intercession for us by name that our faith may not fail. Oh, aren't you grateful? We are grateful, Lord. In penning these words, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, Peter is actually fulfilling the divinely intended purpose of his sifting experience when Jesus said to him, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Peter writes here from personal experience. He's got personal experience with his shadowy opponent. And he writes from personal experience in order to strengthen the faith of the original readers. And by implication, each of us this morning for our encounter with this shadowy opponent who is seeking to devour. So let me just draw your attention to four ways. Four ways Peter strengthens our faith for spiritual warfare from this passage. First, Peter strengthens our faith 
faith by putting us on high alert to the reality of our adversary. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Now remember again, these commands are informed by a guy who regrets not watching. Jesus warned him in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch. Peter, James, and John, boys, watch. Watch and pray. So Peter understood the importance of watching, having failed to watch and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you hadn't noticed, these these imperatives that appear in verse 8, they are an abrupt and and a dramatic change in the theme and the mood in this part of the letter. Because this exhortation in verse 8 immediately follows Peter's comforting reminder in verse 7 of God's care for the original readers and their exhortation to humble themselves by casting all their cares on him. And you recently heard an excellent sermon by Nick Kidwell on this very passage. So they and we are not to be anxious. We're not to be anxious because, well, we're not to be anxious because he cares for us. By the way, don't overlook those words. Those are some of the sweetest words in all of scripture. We are not to be anxious. Why? Why am I not to be anxious this morning? Because he cares for you. But notice, those who are anxiety-free, those who do humble themselves and cast all their cares upon him because of his care for us, they must also be alert. They must be sober-minded. They must be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So casting all our anxieties on him isn't optional, but neither is it sufficient. We are not to be anxious, but we must be alert because because we have a hostile, supernatural adversary. A hostile, supernatural adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking Christians to devour because of his hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a vivid picture. There's a vivid picture of our enemy intentionally portrayed for us and painted for us by Peter in these divinely inspired words. This is a vivid picture of our enemy. He is relentlessly prowling. He is intent on devouring. And by the way, for the original readers, this this isn't a reminder of their most recent visit to the zoo. No, no. This is a reminder of what takes place in the arena. This is a reminder of what takes place in the Colosseum. Peter is reminding them the threat is real. It is not imagined. He is not exaggerating. My friend, this is, this is a glimpse. This is a glimpse. The glimpse at what Satan is doing right now. This is what he's doing right now. He is restlessly and relentlessly prowling about seeking Christians to devour in the limited time he knows he has left to wreak havoc. And my friends, this reality should provoke us to be sober-minded and watchful in order to oppose his relentless attacks. 
Having been personally sifted because he was not watchful, Peter wants the original readers and each of us by implication to be alert to our prowling adversary so that we are not surprised by his attacks, so that we are not vulnerable when he attacks. So Peter is in effect making eye contact with, with each of us this morning and saying, don't make the mistake I made. Don't think you aren't in any danger. That's the mistake I made. I don't want you to make the same mistake. So question for each of us for application. How alert, how alert are you to this shadowy, supernatural, relentlessly prowling adversary seeking to devour your faith? In his excellent commentary on the book of Job, Christopher Ashe exhorts us to be alert, writes about the importance of being alert with these words. When we wake up in the morning, what do we expect our day to be like? We may, of course, have expectations for a particular day. The prospect of a good party or apprehension about a visit to the dentist. But in general, what, what do we expect from a normal day? For a Christian, what ought to be our ideal of the normal Christian life? This is important because our idea of normality will govern whether we end up delighted or disappointed at the end of the day. And then Mr. Ash informs us how we should wake up each day. Every morning, we ought to wake up and say to ourselves, there is a vicious, dark, spiritual battle being waged over me today. Satan is very busy. Let me ask you a question. Is that how you wake up each and every morning? You say to yourself each morning, there is a vicious, vicious spiritual battle being waged over me today. Oh my, there have been many mornings, too many mornings, countless mornings. I did not wake up this way, leaving myself vulnerable to my shadowy adversary. And when I don't wake up this way, I'm neglecting these two commands that have been given for my good, to be sober-minded and to be watchful. I'm saying they're easy commands for us to neglect. So Peter recommends that you add these two commands to your morning routine each day. So after you've humbled yourself at the outset of the day by casting all your cares on him because he cares for you, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Because when you became a Christian, you became involved in a cosmic war. And J.I. Packer helpfully reminds us of this when he writes, by becoming Christians, you walked into a war. Satan's war. Satan's war against the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we must be sober-minded and watchful. We must be careful and attentive each day. No days off because... Satan is prowling and he is stalking 
Christians. Second, Peter strengthens our faith for this street fight by alerting us to the occasion when our adversary attacks or roars in verse 9. Notice verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of, notice this word, same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So verse 9 informs us that persecution for the original leaders, readers or the category of suffering in whatever form, that's the occasion. That's the occasion when the lion attacks, when the lion roars. So Satan roars through suffering, and he roars in suffering, seeking to terrify and torment Christians intent on devouring the faith of Christians. Satan will subtly deceive through temptation to sin, but actually in suffering, his strategy isn't subtle. His strategy is to roar for the purpose of devouring. And this is just vital intel for us to know as Christians. Drawing from his personal and pastoral experience, the Puritan John Flavel serves us big time when he writes about our adversary. Our suffering time is his busiest working time. Many a dismal suggestion he then plants and grafts upon your afflictions, which, read these words carefully, there's a wealth of grace and wisdom in them, reflecting what Peter is teaching here, which are more dangerous to us than the affliction itself. So, Mr. Flavel warns us, he alerts us that our suffering time is Satan's busiest working time, but he also informs us what our adversary is busy doing during our suffering. That this is the purpose of his roaring. This is the effect of the, his roaring. Many a dismal suggestion he plants and grafts upon your afflictions which are more dangerous to us than the affliction itself. So this is what is going down during our experience of suffering in persecution or whatever form. While we are experiencing, while we are in the midst of experiencing and trying to process all that is painful and perplexing in suffering, Satan is seizing that moment. And Satan is busy roaring he is busy sowing suspicion about the character of God and posing questions about the care of God in the midst of our suffering. And Sinclair Ferguson captures his slanderous work that we must be alert to in our suffering when he writes, Satan cannot ultimately destroy a Christian believer, but he is well able to destroy our assurance and our joy, our pleasure in the gospel, so we need to find in the grace of God a defense against those fiery darts of the evil one that Jared read about a moment ago. Listen, the most sinister thoughts Satan insinuates into our minds are not enticements to sin, but suspicions about God himself. He seeks to distort our view of God and our understanding of his gracious character. 
Satan's plan is to blind us to God's grace and to diminish our trust in him, crushing our love for him and destroying all the pleasures of grace. So my friends, this is the intel we need. This is what Satan is busy doing in the midst of suffering. When we find ourselves in the midst of suffering, weakened and vulnerable, he's roaring. He is insinuating into our minds suspicions about God himself, distorting our view of God and our understanding of his gracious character. This is how he devours. He entices us to sin through deception, and then when we sin, he condemns us. This, though, is different. This is different. In this case, he roars in the midst of suffering by slandering God himself and sowing suspicion in our mind about the character of God. So those are two distinct devices of the enemy. And Ferguson is helpfully arguing here that the most sinister thoughts Satan insinuates into our minds are not enticements to sin. He's not minimizing those in any way. But the most sinister, he's arguing, are suspicions about God himself so that ultimately our understanding of his gracious character is distorted and our trust in him and love for him is diminished and we do not enjoy the pleasures of grace. So Flavel is right. These dismal suggestions he plants and grafts in our affliction, in our affliction, they are more dangerous than the affliction itself. They're more dangerous than the affliction itself because when the affliction passes or subsides or concludes, the suspicion grafted, distorting, the character of God remains. If it hasn't been identified, if it hasn't been opposed, if it hasn't been rejected, that suspicion remains. So, whenever someone is suffering, you can be certain Satan is roaring. And we must develop our discernment so that we can discern his roar because he doesn't speak in a different accent. He sows suspicions in our own accent. So we need discernment in able to identify those suspicions. We need to be watchful in suffering for the work of the enemy, sowing suspicion about the character of God because that is more dangerous than whatever someone is presently suffering. Now again, so there's no misunderstanding. This isn't to minimize the suffering anyone in this room is experiencing whatsoever. And may you know God's comfort. Peter is pastoring all of us and caring for us and saying, when, when you suffer, you're vulnerable in the midst of all that's painful and perplexing and difficult merely to endure suffering so that if you aren't alerted to the fact that there's another voice at work seeking to seize that experience of suffering and 
suggest to you, sow suspicions in your mind, where is God? And what do you think your suffering reveals about him? And his care for you. He roars to sow suspicion that can endure, if it's not identified and opposed, beyond the affliction so that the Christian finds him or herself when the affliction has subsided. Suddenly, they become aware. They have suspicions about God's sovereignty, His goodness, His wisdom, His love. Peter is equipping us for spiritual warfare, identifying what is most dangerous in the midst of suffering. Third, he strengthens our faith for this fight by exhorting us to resist him, verse 9. Resist him. So, so we've been freed from all our anxieties in verse 7 so that we might effectively fight. We, we've been freed from anxiety so that we might fight our shadowy opponent and adversary. The appropriate response of the Christian to our adversary is not fear, not fear or flight, but instead resist and fight. And we resist and fight because he is a defeated foe. (laughs) He is a defeated foe. We read in Colossians 2 verse 15, he, God the Father, dis armed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. In Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Rulers and authority, Satan himself, they've been disarmed, they've been put to open shame. Christ has triumphed over them. However, This defeated foe must be resisted. By the Christian, the defeated foe is trying to devour. Ed Clowney in his commentary makes this point about the importance of resisting when he writes, the danger to the Christian is not that he is helpless, but that he will fail to resist. And I also like what Edmund Hybert writes in his commentary about the importance of resisting when he writes, To to cower before the devil is to invite sure defeat. Resistance in faith procures his flight. Scripture urges believers to flee from various evils. But nowhere are they advised to flee from the devil. In their inner attitude, Christians should stand firm and unyielding like granite in resisting Satan. Oh, good news, good news, my friends, good news. Christians need not fear their adversary because of Christ's triumph over our adversary, but Christians must resist their adversary. Okay, how do we do this? Just, just you know, help me here. How am I to resist a supernatural, hostile Roaring lion. Well, Peter tells us. Resist him, notice, firm in your faith. We resist 
by a faith that is firm. Let me ask you a question. Were you hoping for more? <laughs> uh, is that really it? <laughs> is that all it takes? Peter, Peter, is that all you got for us? Well, regrettably, many in the charismatic movement aren't satisfied with this. So they've added to this ways that ways to resist that aren't informed by a text. And this we must humbly avoid and call out as nonsense when necessary. Good news for us, folks. It turns out resisting isn't complicated. It isn't complicated. It is critically important to triumph in this street fight, but resisting isn't complicated. This is it. This is it because this gets it done. That's why this is it. This gets it done. Peter describes what resistance looked like. We resist by a firmness of faith. A firmness of faith in the object of our faith. So to be firm in your faith means Firm in the object of your faith. Firm in your trust in the sovereignty and the goodness and the wisdom of God. Firm in your trust in the triumph of the risen Christ of the cross. Firm in your trust of the promises of God. Firm in your trust in the personal care of God. Peter just reminded us about in verse 7. Our weapon in this warfare is a firm faith in the goodness of God. So, my friends, no wonder Satan's desire is to devour our faith. His desire is to devour our faith in suffering by roaring because our faith is the means of triumphant resistance. So... The way to thwart him is to strengthen what he is trying to destroy. And Peter's entire letter has been written, as you now know, it has been written to strengthen your faith, to strengthen our faith so that our faith is firm. It's a firm faith. And it's a firm faith for this fight. And when we resist in this way, my friends, Scripture informs us that Satan backs down. And not only does he back down, James reminds us in his letter, he won't just back down. He flees. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now don't, <laughs> don't misunderstand. He's not fleeing because of you. Okay? He is not afraid of you. He is not terrified in any way by you. He flees because he is terrified of the triumphant Christ that your faith is firm in. And the power of the spirit that dwells within you. He flees because Christ 
through his sinless life and substitutionary sacrifice and resurrection from the dead and ascension to the right hand of the Father has triumphed over Satan and his cohort. He is a defeated foe, which is why when he is resisted with a firm faith in the gospel, he flees because it was that gospel that defeated him. So we are reminding him of the gospel that defeated him. And as we do and resist him firm in our faith, he flees. Now, listen, I, I, don't, I, don't, though, I don't want to leave you the impression this is always easy. This is just, it just you can do this effortless. This is easy. It's done quickly. It's not. No. Now, this is a street fight. This is often a brawl. It's often an extended brawl. And Martin Luther, who wrote much about this fight with the evil one, he describes what is often involved in resisting our adversary in a lesson to a friend. This is a friend Luther was caring for. This friend was both ill and depressed. And Satan was roaring in the midst of his suffering. And Luther cared for him by writing, My dear friend, it is high time that you cease relying on and pursuing your own thoughts. Your thoughts should yield to this divine will and be obedient to it and not doubt that your thoughts being in conflict with God's will, listen, were forcibly inserted into your mind by the devil. Consequently, you must resist them sternly and either suffer them or eradicate them with like force. And if it is hard for you to do this, imagine that you are held fast and bound by chains and that you must work and sweat yourself out of their stranglehold by powerful exertions. For the darts of the devil cannot be removed pleasantly and without effort when they are so deeply embedded in your flesh. They must be torn out by force. Accordingly, you must be resolute. Bid yourself defiance and say to yourself wrathfully, Be gone! You thoughts of the devil. So my friend, that, that is often what it looks like in practice to resist him firm in your faith. It is not pleasant and it cannot be done without grace, empowering effort and struggle and the help of friends. And so we, we must prepare folks. We must prepare folks so that their, their expectations about this fight are realistic. Finally, fourthly, Peter strengthens their faith by reminding them that their persecution and suffering is not unique and they are not alone. Knowing, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, verse 9, are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. So their, their resistance is not only anchored in a faith that is firm, but it's also strengthened by the knowledge they're not alone. They're not alone in their suffering. He's already informed them, as you are aware, in chapter 4, that they shouldn't be surprised by their suffering. Here, he informs them that they're not alone in their suffering. It's not just them who are suffering. They are not being uniquely singled out. No, persecution, suffering, it's, it's the common experience of the brotherhood throughout the Greco-Roman world. And, and knowledge that Suffering is common throughout the broader church. It should strengthen our faith to resist and endure in the midst of suffering. We're all strengthened for this fight. We are all strengthened in this fight as we endure persecution and suffering. We're strengthened by the knowledge that we're together. 
together in this fight. We are not alone and isolated from each other. Oh, my friends, I beg you, I plead with you, do not suffer alone. You don't have to. You have this fabulous church body here that will walk with you through your severest seasons of suffering. Make sure you do not suffer alone and isolated because our prowling adversary does his most effective work when you are alone. And you are isolated from the church. Have you noticed that he often attacks during the night? No surprise. Why? Well, because we're alone. And again, I have found the personal pastoral letters of Luther in a book titled Luther, Letters of Spiritual Counsel. It was compiled by Theodore Tapper to be really helpful in this regard. In, in a different letter to a different friend he is caring for who is suffering in a similar way. Here's, listen to what Luther recommends. By all means, flee solitude. For the devil watches and lies in wait for you most of all when you are alone. So Peter informs the original readers that they are not alone. They're not alone in their experience of suffering. And my friends, neither are we. So now let me just remind you of what you already know. Many of God's richest blessings are the people he has placed in our lives. Those would be the people, no doubt this morning, seated next to you, right and left. People seated in the very row with you. People seated throughout this auditorium. God has richly blessed every member of this church with the rich gift we do not deserve of family and friends who will be there for us and walk with us through our dark night and seasons of the soul, helping us to identify that roaring voice seeking to sow suspicion, helping us to identify that shadowy opponent so that we might fight and resist those suggestions, those sinister suggestions, so that they do not take hold in our minds, so that they aren't the enduring effect of suffering, so that we emerge from suffering, not only not being suspicious of God, but emerge from suffering knowing Him better and trusting him even more for he is sovereign and good and wise and ever living to make intercession for us so that our faith may not fail. Lord, you have been so good to us. Oh, you're not alone. See, the temptation when we suffer is to be alone. Temptation when we suffer is to isolate ourselves from the church. But don't do that. Don't do that. No. Run to your friends in the church and say, help me. I'm suffering. Help me.
fight. Help me. Be watchful. Help me to resist. Don't fight alone. Listen, uh, the, the, there shouldn't be any secret suffering. doesn't mean that, that this needs to be announced broadly. But all of us, every one of us, need at least a few we can share our suffering with who can come alongside us and help us to endure and to identify and to fight this shadowy opponent. So if you have not recruited others to care for you in your suffering, could I encourage you after this meeting, at some point this week, enlist others so that you do not suffer alone because one of the great gifts of this church is how relationally rich this church is with people who have suffered and trusted God and emerged closer to him as a result of their resisting this shadowy opponent. So my friends, given the reality of of our supernatural enemy. Given, given his hostility toward us because of his hatred of Christ. Give, given his relentless opposition. May we leave here sober-minded. May we be more intensely watchful because as J.R.R. Tolkien reminds us in The Hobbit it does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him let's pray Father we just, we just stand amazed again so few words, so much grace and wisdom. Thank you for displaying your care for us afresh this morning by inspiring Peter to pen these divinely inspired words, not only for the original readers, but Lord, you preserve the penning of these words, these divinely inspired words, with each of us in your peripheral vision, with each of us in view today. So, we receive your care, and we thank you for equipping us for this fight. We thank you most of all for Christ's triumph over the enemy and we are freshly grateful that the one who triumphed over him is the one who ever lives to make intercession for us so that our faith might not fail in this fight. All by your grace, all because of the cross, and all for your glory, Father. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.